moment you're the youngest in the family and you look around and you're the new baby and then you blink and suddenly someone's come in behind you there's another one and, and so, soon you will not be the babies in the family I mean it's basically someone will be and then um, and, and you can go to these staff meetings with senior pastors and you you see it's, it's, it's almost like what's that um, evolution picture you know where the different age like, it's like there's, there's one that's a year old there's one that's two years old there's one that's three years old there's one, it's almost you can see yourself in two years time and see yourself two years back it's hilarious in this room but anyway there you are uh, so we're um, a year on depending on which date you count from you guys um, and so uh, Alex said well come and do some stuff about what it's like to be a church a year in so that's what I thought I'd do um, let me give you um verse. My church plant one year in. I'll come on to the, the, the Bible in a bit. This is Rick, Richard Cokin, um, who's the director of commission. I remember, this is one of his classics that he probably nicked it, but I love it. We often overestimate what can be done in a year, but underestimate what can be done in five. And that is true. It's, it's striking, because Dundonald, uh, this weekend, next weekend, last week, we can't remember, are celebrating their 25th anniversary. And I remember going to Dundonald when it was in a school and it was basically this size. And that was 25 years ago. And now it's a church that's planted, I don't know how many churches they've planted, and how, you know, they're hundreds in size now. And it, uh, it, but, but it did start like this, at one stage. And after a year, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel. I don't know if the honeymoon period has worn off, but it will. <laughs> it will. And you'll get to a point in which the initial burst of excitement, you know, it's like a rocket, you know, the initial fuel has burnt out, and now you're, you're going along, and... It just feels a bit harder because actually revival hasn't broken out and you're still a slightly bigger, small church and things are hard work and is it always going to be like this? And you think, is it worth keeping going? And that's why this is a really helpful statement because in the first year you subconsciously expect this is going to be amazing and you get to a year and you realise, oh, it isn't. And that's the hard... Actually, I think a year in is one of the hardest points for a church. But you'll blink, and five years will go by, and you'll look and go, where did all these people come from? So you need to have a slightly longer uh, way of thinking. But what I really want to encourage you today is, is to think even further beyond than five years. In our church, we, uh, like, so, like I said, we're about a year on from you guys. And um, when we got to the end of the first year, let me tell you how it felt. I think we were exhausted, to be honest. And we've got a really high proportion of children, so everyone is on the children's rotor a lot. And it's not just children's rotors, all sorts of other rotors. And when you're at a certain scale, it just feels like you're on something every week. And it just gets, it gets tiring, to be honest. And people, that initial energy for serving, it wanes. People were looking for reasons to get out. And certain people have problems spiritually. Well, real problems spiritually. So they've got to drop out of rotors. And other people have got... And, and it ends up being the same sort of people that are having to pick up. And everyone's getting tired. You can get despondent. You can... You can look around and think, well, this isn't quite as fun as it was when we first started out and we were uh, little ones. Um, we haven't had loads of conversions. We haven't got Christianity Explored courses with people burgeoning out of the, out the windows. I think a lot of what keeps people going in the early stages of churches, what your hope is, is that um, if we just got to that bit, that stage then, if we got to the next bit, then it'll be all right. And you, you kind of, you're looking to the next bit when you're thinking, oh, when we get there, then it'll be okay. I remember we had this prayer meeting last year where we were praying for Grace Church Worcester Park. Grace Church Worcester Park in that um, lineup is kind of one or two further on from us. 
So if you go there, they're, I don't know how old they're, about four maybe years old, five years old, and they've got a hundred people there maybe in, in a school. They're doing good, you know. And uh, so we were praying for them, and um, I asked Suresh to give me the prayer list, and it was things like, um, I've, I've got them written down here, he said, um, can you pray for us, uh, struggling to get to, uh, to get the new people to integrate, uh, the Christianity Explored course isn't working too well, and we've got massive gaps in the rotor that need filling. And then we came on to our prayer bit, uh, and it was uh, struggling to get new people to integrate, Christianity Explored not working too well, big gaps in the rotor that need filling. And there was just this moment of penny dropping when you realise, <laughs> oh, when we get to the promised land of 100 people, <laughs> it's going to be exactly the same, <laughs> but bigger. And my point, I guess, is, if you set your hope in, oh, if only we got to that stage and then we got to there, um, you'll be disappointed, it won't happen. And here's the reason why, and I think this is really hard to believe, but I promise you it's true. Churches that grow are churches of pain. And churches that are dying are churches of comfort. And the day you get to the point where you've gone, oh, isn't this nice? This is comfortable. Is the, is the death knell. There should be a bell donging in your head thinking, this is it. We're going to go like that. Because growing churches are struggling financially, are struggling at the edges of rotors. People are knackered. That's, that's a growing church. That's what happens. Because that's being a disciple. And the point at which you get comfortable is a bad place. And all churches will get there eventually. They all do. Even the great church. What were the greatest churches of the Victorian era? They're all gone. Because they all were like that, and then they went like that, and then they went like that. And it's that middle bit there. It's the comfort bit. It's the, when you, you stop wanting it to be hard work. In fact, ironically, whenever you talk to anyone from Dundonald, they're struggling with the same stuff, and they're three, four hundred size, so it just keeps on going. I think the biggest problem, therefore, with church plants one year in, or one of the big problems, there's many, I'm sure, but one of them is false hope. We're hoping for a bigger, more comfortable church. We're, we're essentially looking for the church equivalent of retirement, where you can kind of go, oh, that's better. Done my hard bit now. Work hard now, because there's a point at which we can, oh, it'll be all right there. And that's, if that's our hope for a church, um, it, you'll end up disappointed. Um, and so that's the, like I say, the big thing, single biggest reason churches stagnate is comfort. Now, um, let me um, go and change the gears and show you a video. Right, I'm going to show you a video. Now, uh, this, is a, uh, this is an athletics race. I'm not an athletics buff, but you all know that there are certain athletics races that you might have all watched because it was the Olympics or something, that just stick in the mind. Okay? This is my, if I've got one, this is my favourite ever athletics race. I just remember watching it, remember where I was at the time. Um, and it's a race uh, from the Olympics in 2004, I think it was, uh, Athens. And it's the men's 4x100 metres relay final. Now, in those days, as in every days, America were easily the best. Like, if you, if there are four runners in the 4x100 metres, I think we were the four, four in the top five or six runners in the world. They all were in the final, and a Portuguese bloke came second, and they came first, third, and fourth or something. It was, you know, Maurice Green, who won it, is their fourth leg, and he, you just watch him, and he gets the fourth leg, he's just like out of sight, it's amazing. And of course, the Brits, I think, got to the semi-final a bit, you know, but they did quite well. Anyway, so here's the race. Um, we're supporting Great Britain, by the way. If I um, so what lane are we in? We're in lane, we're in the early middle lane, lane two, I think we're in, and they're in lane five. Is that right? Uh, we're in lane three, and they're in lane five. So um, 
because you're quite a passionate crowd, you can get into this. So we're in the pub <laughs> watching this as a race, and we're cheering on GB, all right? So that's how it's going to work. Let's watch it. Uh, we're in lane three, they're in lane five. Come on, the UK! Come on, GB! We're in lane five. I might have accidentally pressed the button. Right, okay, no, no, no. You didn't see anything there. Go on, Team JP! We're in lane three! They're in lane five! Go on, boys! They're our second lane. about the this upper half of the body that's got a cross, you see. So he actually won it because of his head and not because of his leg. Wasn't that amazing? An amazing race. Now, here's, why don't I show you a random athletic video? Nostalgic, right? This is Mark Lewis Francis running the fourth leg. Now, what I want you to do is look at his face right there. I want you to see the bulging things in his neck and look at, look at his muscles. Look at his, even his, his mouth is so contorted, it's, oh, it's not the sort of photo you put up on the wall, you know, but he's a smiling, it's my school photo, you know, look at him, he's really going for it, isn't he? Now, what, let me tell you what he's not thinking right there. He's not thinking, oh, I've left the iron on. <laughs> and he's not thinking, I need to pick up some milk on the way home from Tesco's. He's got one thing in his mind. There's never been a more focused man in the history of humanity than that moment. Because he's running to hit that line. He's, he knows 0.01 seconds, that's it. Have a look down. Um, have I put it on your screen? Let me give you the verse on the screen. I'm sure, I hope you, can, you probably can't see that. I'll have to read it to you. One thing I... No, oh, that's a bit annoying. Isn't it? Oh, don't worry about it. Let me read it to you. One thing I do, Paul says in Philippians, forgetting what is behind... And straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And the bit I put in bold there is straining towards what is ahead. There is a picture of a man who is doing a fair amount of straining. Paul says there is one thing he does in life. There's only one thing he does in life. He's straining to get to the end. Here's a man whose hope is on the finishing line. When Jesus Christ comes. And he's got his mind absolutely trained on that. And everything he's doing in life here is about that moment. I remember hearing Paula Radcliffe on the radio once. And she uh, was asked the question, you know, there you are, hitting the wall at 18 miles in your marathon. How do you keep going? And she says, what I do is, I literally, in my mind, imagine myself hitting the finishing line. And if I have that in my mind, 
It helps me in that really, really biting, difficult moment. And that's what Paul's saying. I've got one thing in my mind, hitting that finishing line. And everything I'm doing in life is about that moment, is about that goal, that end. And that's why I want to actually spend the rest of this time randomly looking at Revelation 21. And what, what I want to do is, is help you have very strongly in your mind what it'd be like finishing... I essentially want to do a Paula Radcliffe on you. I want to give you a really strong picture of hitting that finishing line. Because if you have that really strongly in your mind, it will keep you going. Essentially, there's, there's two things that I'm trying to do today. First is... Is, um, is help you want to strain towards that finishing line so that you're running at full velocity, you don't fall by the wayside. But also, secondly, that you have the right finishing line. Because like I said a moment ago, I think in church plants what can happen is you think the finishing line in your head is, well, if we just got to 50 people, if we just got to 100, then things... And that, if, you're, if you're running a marathon at that speed, you'll run out of puff quite quickly. It's running at the right finishing line with all the energy that I have in me is the key. So that's why I want to talk about hope. That's why I want to talk about Revelation 21. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to do it a lot quicker than um, I'd like to. I'd love to do this in a whole talk series. Let me give you four points from Revelation 21. Have a look at it on your sheet. Have you got it on your sheet there? I'm going to read it out of the Bible, controversially. Right. <laughs> Let me read Revelation 21. I'm going to have four points and each of them will be pretty quick. Okay, Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Four points. First one, a renewed creation. It's a bit annoying the why, I don't know why that's happened, but anyway, let me just read it. First one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So this is Genesis 1 language, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is what God is, just as I did it in the beginning, I'm going to redo it again. It's going to be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And therefore what we're looking forward to is physical and not spiritual. A lot of people get confused about this. A lot of people think that heaven is some sort of floaty, floaty spiritual existence. But it isn't. It will be physical, tangible, real. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he ate fish. You know, he, he said, go on, you can touch me, you can poke me right there. You could have touched him. He was real. He is real. And so will the new heavens and the new earth be. It's not floaty, floaty up in the sky. It's a new earth, like this one. But a better one, a right one. So it will be, um, oh, there's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is good for quotes, isn't he? The Great Divorce is the uh, last book in the Narnia series, if you've ever read those. And uh, it's worth this last bit. He talks about Narnia, the new Narnia, the new heavens and the new earth. 
he said this. The new Narnia is, is different from the real thing, the old Narnia, as is from a shadow or waking life is from a dream. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. I I like his way of trying to describe that the new heavens and the new earth is not only not an intangible spiritual thing, it's a real physical thing. It actually makes what we have here look like a shadow, like a passing metaphor. Because somehow it's even more real. Because this is the uncursed eternal, unchanging new creation. It'll be a place of, therefore, extraordinary beauty. I don't know if you've got the travelling bug. I meet people all the time that, you know, desperately want to go travelling to this, that or the other place. And I feel that way too. Um, I'm planning on doing a round-the-world trip at some stage. I was thinking, rather than a year, I was thinking maybe 10,000 or 15,000 years of travelling around the world. And um, I was thinking I might do it in the new creation, where everything is much more beautiful and much more perfect. So do you know what? If I never left the Streatham postcode, it will be alright. Because I've got a long time to look around the real creation, not the shadow one. Um, The Bible describes it as a place of extraordinary abundance, so um, in the prophets in the Old Testament, there's one description of waterfalls of, of fine wine coming down. I love the idea of walking around with a wine glass and just, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, and it's uh, described as a place of banquets of choice meat. I've got in my head that Harry Potter, you know, with all these long tables and just meat everywhere. You know, it's a pl- these are pictures of abundance. No one has got any lack in the New Heavens and the New Earth. There's this picture of the river of the water of life just flowing through. Not the river Thames and kind of stagnant place of death. This is the river of the water of life. And everything's flourishing by the banks. I take it therefore, because it's a physical place, the new creation, the renewed creation, will be a place of normal life. People will work and play. And there will be people and houses and roads and food and markets and shops. And it will be... Normal life in one sense, but very much not normal life. It won't be floaty, floaty, weirdy. It will be people in society, but a right society, an uncursed one. And then you get that funny phrase in verse uh, 1, there's no longer any sea. So a lot of people go, oh, I'm a surf bum, I'm not looking forward to the ends of the earth. But I don't think he's, I don't think it, you know, revelation is, is metaphor. Okay, what does he mean by no longer any sea? I don't know, is the answer to that question. But I think it might be this. On day three of creation, day two of creation, uh, God does this thing where he's, he's separating stuff in days one, two, and three. And he separates water from water. And in day two, there's, there's, there's all water on the earth. And he, he separates the water from the water and puts water up here. It's like there's two seas. There's, a, there's an up sea and a low sea. Okay. And the upper sea, I take it, is a boundary, it's like a fence between heaven and earth. And if you know the temple, it's like the curtain in the temple. So when you see pictures or images of God, like in Revelation 4, there's all God is often on a throne on a crystal sea. It's like there's a sea barrier between, a kind of water barrier between heaven and earth. And that's what's going on in chapter 1, uh, 21.1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven and the first heaven had passed away, there was no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, the Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride. 
There's a sense in which what's going on here in Revelation 21 is that God in heaven is coming down to live on the new earth. The barrier has been taken away. The curtain temple has been torn. There's no longer any seat. There's no longer any barrier. I don't know if that's the answer, but that's the way I like to think of it. What's going on here? It's not a kind of we're not going to do any swimming. This is all the barriers between heaven and earth are completely taken away. Now, some of us, um, and this is definitely the case in a place like Streatham, your, I don't know if this, you wouldn't say this, you wouldn't admit to this, but your greatest hope in life will be living in Kent or Surrey. Some of you, what you're really looking forward to is an extra bedroom and a nice green kind of vista as you look out your um, Romeo and Juliet windows uh, and your, uh, you know, um, loft conversion. And I just want to encourage you that actually, uh, that is a rough, that's a rubbish hope. <laughs> You've got the wrong finishing line. Seriously, what you need burning bright in your mind, Paula Radcliffe style, as you go through the pain of Streatham, if you can call it that, is one day I will live in the renewed creation. And however rubbish or grotty or slimy or smelly this life is, do you know what? It's just a few more decades. Let's just keep going. Let's keep running for that end. And not for the end of, oh, look at my semi-D. Okay, that's the first one. Let's go on to the second point. A perfected people. A perfected people. Point two. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. <laughs> What's going on here? What's the best moment in any wedding, conventional wedding? I think the best moment in any wedding, really, is the bit when um, everyone's sitting there waiting for the bride to turn up, and then she turns up. And then she walks, do you remember this? And she walks down the aisle, and everyone has got the biggest smile on their face, and they're looking at her, and they're really, really excited. And um, she, she milks every moment of it. Do you know that they, they do that thing where they go really slowly? And they milk every moment of it. So it's really, really slow. So there's plenty of time for photos. It's just, it's really milking in that moment. I think what's being described in this verse is that moment in the wedding, in the wedding ceremony. Okay. What's going on here is as the bride walks beautifully, uh, looking beautiful down this aisle, beautifully dressed for her husband, as all creation is watching, kind of craning their neck, trying to get some photos in, if you like. But here, the bridegroom, at the end of the aisle, looking back at his wife coming up the aisle, going, oh, look at her, isn't she great? The bridegroom is God himself. And the bride is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. That is us. That is the people of God. Beaming as we walk down the aisle, looking straight ahead at our husband. It's a wonderful moment. How can a city be dressed as a bride? Of course, it's not a city, it's not a building. It's a people, it's us. In the Bible, the people of God are often described as the people of the holy city. Um, just in the, as, as we might say, London, uh, the phrase London is, a, London is multicultural, there's a phrase you might use. We don't mean that uh, the shard is multicultural, we mean the people are multicultural. And here, the Jer- New Jerusalem. <coughs> which is dressed as a bride. That's the people. It's not the place. It's not the buildings. And the beautiful dress in Revelation often is a, is a, a metaphor for a righteousness. So uh, 
your clothing often describes your godliness. And the, so, chapter 3, there's an ungodly church in Laodicea, and they're described as naked spiritually. But here, this is the righteous saints dressed in, in beautiful linen, in beautiful white, dressed as a bride, as a virgin. Now, I don't know uh, if you've been married and uh, you're a lady and you've done the whole dress thing and all the going to the shop and getting all dressed up and all the makeup in the morning and doing with your bridesmaids if you did all that kind of thing. The idea is that in principle, on your wedding day, you'll never look more beautiful. That's the idea. You know, all the money that's spent on the dress <laughs> and the makeup and the hair and, you know, it, you, you should never look more picture perfect than you do on that day. When God's people walk down the aisle from heaven to the new earth, they'll never look more glorious than they've ever, ever done in the history before that day. Because they'll never be more righteous. And if you're here today and you trust in Jesus Christ, then that is you. I don't know if you, you lust after your wedding day, but that's what the Bible is encouraging us to do. Let's just meditate on a moment on what we will be like, us, forever in the new creation. I've called this a perfected people, at this point. Uh, but the word perfect um, is, a, is, a, is an odd word, it's a wrong word to use in one sense. I think often what we mean by uh, perfect is ideal in every way. But the Bible never says we're ideal in every way. It doesn't ever say perfected. It says uncursed. In other words, the bad stuff of sin is gone. And the terrible effects of sin is gone and removed again. We're not um, literally perfect. We won't know everything. We won't become, uh, I know all facts. We won't be omniscient because if we did that, then we'd be God. And we'll never be God. We won't have ultimate strength and all power. We won't be Superman. We won't be omnipotent. I won't be able to lift every rock ever. Because if I was all powerful, then I'd be God. And I'll never be God. But we will have bodies which look glorious. The reason that the Lord Jesus appeared, one of the reasons he appeared after his resurrection, is that we can know we will look like him. That's what's happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. We will have strong, vigorous, healthy bodies, which encourage those of us who are sick or have broken bodies in whatever way. It makes us long for that day. I've got two sister-in-laws who have cerebral palsy, and I'm really looking forward to the day when I can have a proper conversation with them and they're running and jumping. It will be an amazing day. And just meditate on for a moment what, on what not just us as individuals with our bodies, but what society will be like when everyone is perfectly sinless and righteous. Imagine what Streatham will be like, or the world will be like, if there was no more violence or aggression or war or terrorism or guns or murder or abuse or bullying or fear. And imagine what Streatham High Street will be like in the new creation. Imagine walking home late at night in Streatham in the new creation. And then you'd be like, what's the problem here? Imagine just um, as you're walking along, um, you know, people stopping you going, hi, I don't know you, but hi. <laughs> because everyone genuinely and sincerely loves each other. Everyone is honest and kind. Everyone has other people's best interests at heart. When people talk to you, you know they care about you more than they care about themselves. And everyone is like that. A, a society of real trust. A world full of love. Everyone having each other's interests rather than their own. 
Imagine walking up Peckham High Street, as uh, Peckham High Street, Stretton High Street, sorry, and people smiling at you, people welcoming you in the shops. Everyone is a friendly face. Imagine the underground in the new creation, <laughs> right? None of this sullen silence. Exactly. More than half years, and you sit down. Hi. Hi, who are you? I'm, I'm Mark, I'm Jane, great to meet you. So tell me about your life. You know, and you've got thousands of years to talk about. So uh, lots of... <laughs> Imagine a tube journey of love. <laughs> now it's ridiculous because, because we can't imagine that. But you can, can't you? You know? And just to meditate just very quickly with me what it will be like for you to be truly righteous. Imagine never being tempted by sin ever again or worried that you will be tempted in the future. Every instinct of our heart, you know, um, all the instincts of lust or hate or envy or lying are just gone forever. It's utterly gone, like a vacuum of it. No more burdens to addictions or, or pain. It's a wonderful finishing line to meditate on, isn't it? Let me just remind you again why I'm doing this. The perfect church is not going to happen in Stratton, right? That is not going to happen here. Well, not yet, anyway. And if we're running for the day when a church becomes a certain kind of people, it won't happen. But if we're running for the right finishing line, single-mindedly, then we'll keep going. Our third point. Same picture. A present God. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he'll dwell with them and they'll be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. So there's that best moment in a wedding as the bride walks down the aisle. But, but it's not just the bride we're looking at. You might do this when you glance at the bridegroom. I mean, everyone's looking at the bride. But there's the bridegroom with that smile as wide as his face going, Look at her! She's marrying me! What's going on here? And in this wedding day ceremony that we're reading about here in Revelation 21, that bridegroom who's looking down the aisle and going, I'm the luckiest guy alive, is God himself. One of the tragedies I find when I speak to Christians about what they imagine heaven will be like is they tend to pick their favourite indulgence in this life and just multiply it by thousands. So heaven will be the endless ski slopes of perfect snow powder or white sandy beaches with clear crystal sea just to sit on and relax or um, heaven will be uh, 72 virgins feeding me grapes and doing me sexual favours. Whatever your fantasy is, multiply by a lot. Okay, But that's really quite an appalling way of thinking about heaven because it's not principally about fulfilling our hedonistic fantasies, although it will be a great place of fun. The greatest thing about heaven is that God himself will be there. And he will be the husband looking down the aisle at you, going, look at her. I'm so lucky. And it's because he did it. In the next chapter, in 22.4, it says, um, the people of God, we, will see his face. I don't know what the most awe-inspiring thing you've ever seen in your life is. Maybe it's a a mountain or an extraordinary waterfall. What will it be like with your own physical eyes to see the living God? And not only to look at him and go, wow, doesn't that look impressive? But to look at him 
And as he looks at you, you see your husband. That will be astonishing. That is a finishing line worth running for. The centrepiece of heaven is not actually the fact that it's a renewed amazing place. Or or that it's a renewed amazing society. But that God himself is there. And if you're single today, by the way, and you're really struggling with your singleness, this is a finishing line to have burnt brightly in your mind. Because to be honest, if you can just hang on for a few more decades, you'll be married in the best marriage. You just keep going, because it's not long. Many people in church plants after a year in lose their focus. They begin to lose their focus. Their minds start uh, wandering from the excitement of the church, because that's waned, to a job over here, or a house over there, or a life over here. And what's lost in our hearts, really, and what we've lost is the Lord in our hearts. We've lost our love for him. And what I want to try and do is burn brightly in your head that finishing tape and where we're really running for so that you don't lose that focus. Um, I'm not even going to bother doing my last point because I've been going on too long. I'm going to move that one on. What I want to encourage you is this. It's a place without curse. No more tears, mourning or crying pain. Amazing. Lots to think about. Let me remind you that, like that verse in Philippians. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The reason I've done this talk again in Revelation 21 was two reasons. One is that if, you, if your finishing line for Stretton Central is when we get to 100 or we get to 150, then you've got the wrong finishing line and the false hope. You'll give up and go comfortable. So don't do that. Fix your eyes on the right finishing line. But secondly was to encourage you to run for the right finishing line with all the energy and power that all of your spiritual muscles can muster. Just like him. (coughs) To run with every bit of your body and make sure you hit that finishing line. Do you know, whatever you do in life, whoever you marry, wherever you live, wherever you end up going to church, whatever big decisions you make about job and career and all those kinds of things, make sure there's only one thing you do. If you do none of those other things well... Pick one thing that you hit that finishing line. Remember Paula Radcliffe. As I'm running and I'm going through the pain, what have I got in my head? That moment of that finishing line. And that would be my prayer for you, that that would be big and bold in your eyes too. Can I pray? Father, it seems ridiculous to have spent, you know, how 20 minutes thinking about eternity <laughs> and thinking about things which are so big and so wonderful and we feel like we've looked at the, of a grainy image in a holiday brochure so we pray Father God by your Holy Spirit through your word you would burn in the retinas of our spirits and the eyes of our spirits brightly and strongly such an a, an an idea, such a vision for the greatness of your new creation, of the people that will be, and of being with our God, our husband, that it would be the driving force of our hearts every day of our life. Until the day we're 85 or 90 and dropping in our bodies, we are still running hard for that finishing line. And we pray as well as a church, Father, that we will be a church with a hope which is in that 
and not in something comfortable or short-term or something slightly better than what we've got here. But we would be a people with a massive hope from a massive God. And all of this is testimony to your extraordinary grace. All of this is just a gift. How can we say anything but thank you in a massive, massive way? You're a great God and we cannot wait to be with you and live with you, Father. Amen.